Last Sunday was a historic day in the life of our church. If you weren't here, let me quickly summarize by saying that God's choice and calling on Amy Roll to become the next senior pastor of our church was confirmed by the membership of this congregation and its vote. So it was a very significant time. I want to encourage you today to uh, be praying for Pastor Amy and our church in yet another time of transition. Uh, Amy intends on going on sabbatical for roughly the second half of June, the first half of July, and will commence her new responsibilities on August the 1st. So we encourage you to be supporting uh, her in prayer, and our church in prayer. But in addition, if you were here last week, or happened to read her summary paragraph in the most recent newsletter, you were challenged to serve. In light of the gifts and the talents, the design that God has given to you, we encourage you to step up and serve during this very significant season in life of our congregation. Okay, today we are returning to our series of Romans chapter eight, the greatest chapter in the entire Bible on the theme of the absolute security of a Christ follower. And so up until now, the Apostle Paul has been describing the certainty of our relationship to God in very positive ways. For example, he begins this chapter by saying in the opening verse, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Was that good news or what? No condemnation. There will never be a time when you will come under God's judicial sentence of condemnation. Never. Why? Well, because you have already paid your penalty. You say, I have? Yeah, you have, in the person of your substitute, Jesus Christ. As we noted in our catechism question this morning, the righteousness of Christ has been charged to us, our sin has been charged to him. So that's why Paul can affirm in this opening verse, there's no condemnation to those who are in, who are joined to, united with Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the positive emphasis. Paul goes on to emphasize the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So on this Pentecost Sunday, when we're celebrating the greatest blessing that comes to us in this new age in which we now live, the coming of the Holy Spirit, Paul emphasizes the fact that if you're a Christ follower, says in verse nine, you can't even be a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. He has invaded your life. He has given you life, he says in verse eight. You've been born again of God's Spirit and his Holy Spirit testifies with your inner spirit that you belong to God that you are his deeply loved child, that he's adopted you into his family so you can cry out to him in seasons of prayer and challenge and difficulty, Abba, Father. All of those blessings the Apostle Paul has been emphasizing in very positive ways. Until now, because the last verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago, verse 17, introduces kind of a painful thought, here it is. Now if, or better translated, since, since we are children, God's children adopted into his family, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we 
share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now at that point, you feel like saying, well, wait a minute, who's been saying anything about suffering? Where does that come from? Where's all of this positive stuff? No condemnation, Holy Spirit, all of these great things that have happened to us, suffering. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly understands that we live in an age in which we do suffer. And so unless he can explain why we suffer and how it is that suffering fits into a Christian worldview, he knows that many of us are going to lack confidence concerning our relationship to him. We're going to have all kinds of painful questions about all of that. And so the Apostle Paul then, from this point on to the very end of the chapter, will say a number of things on this topic of suffering and how it connects with a Christian world perspective. So with that in mind, as we look at our text for the morning, I invite you to stand to see what does he say here about that theme of suffering. Let's stand together. Romans chapter 8, reading verses 18 to 25. Let's hear the word of God. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here ends the reading of God's truth. Please be seated. Listen to a sample of headlines that I just captured uh, in recent days. The man who killed two Wisconsin police officers admitted to struggling with divorce and didn't like getting pushed around by the police. So he executed two of them. 17-year-old suspect in the killing of a St. Anthony Park man was charged back in April with robbing a student in a bathroom at St. Paul's Harding High School. Another headline, loneliness has hit crisis levels in the United States and this epidemic is expected to only worsen. Magnitude 5.5 earthquake strikes Northern California with 5.2 aftershocks expected. And then of course, just a day or two ago, the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, an event in our city that rocked it and has perhaps forever changed it. So death, disease, disasters, human suffering is all over, isn't it? And it's not simply out there somewhere, it's in here. It's in my life and it's in your life. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's the loss of your health, 
the loss of a loved one, financial concerns, worries, fears, maybe it's the ache of a broken relationship, the pain of watching somebody you really care about make damaging life decisions and it just hurts, it's, it's pain. And so all of the different kinds of tragic events and circumstances that we're dealing with these days has the potential of leaving us shocked, numb, confused, questioning our faith, wondering even if God even cares. And so this topic of suffering is one that the Apostle Paul has got to address, and so he does in this passage before us. Now, just to very briefly give you a, a very quick summary of some of the statements that he makes regarding suffering in our world today, here are some of his themes. He mentions in verse 19, creation is, is in pain and it's waiting for the time of its redemption. It was subjected to frustration. He tells us it's in bondage to decay and it's even suffering the pains and difficulties of ch like childbirth. So what he's really doing then is continuing this thought about suffering that he introduced back in verse 17. We're, yeah, we're God's children. If indeed we suffer, in a, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So yes, we're united to Christ. We've been forgiven. No condemnation now we dread. You know, that great song that we sing from time to time by Charles Wesley around here. So great blessings, the Holy Spirit has invaded our lives, all of these wonderful positive things, but just as Jesus suffered, so you and I are called to suffer as well. So Paul here wants to ground us in the theme of our security. That being the case, he's got to explain, as your sermon notes indicate, if you haven't yet looked at the front of it, look at it under theme, Here's where we're going this morning, why the world is the way it is and, why, and what we can look forward to. So these are themes that the apostle addresses by means of a contrast between what is now and what is yet to come. Now let me say just one more thing about this theme of suffering. What Paul says here in the following verses is absolutely unique. You're not gonna find teaching anything like this anywhere else other than in scripture. You're not gonna find it in Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, or any other ism as far as that goes, because what we're dealing with is not human thinking but divine revelation, which makes it really the only teaching on the topic of suffering that's worthy of your time or your serious contemplation. So, how are you and I supposed to respond to suffering? Well, first of all, we have a description concerning what is now. And if there's one word in this passage that summarizes what is now, it's this word groaning. Look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, if you listen carefully, you can almost hear the groan of creation. You can hear it in its storms, in its disasters, its hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. You can hear the groan of creation in times of war as what's going on in Ukraine right now or, or Syria, elsewhere, in diseases, crime, violence, the loss of human life. All of this represents 
the moaning and the groaning and the sighing of creation itself. So what is it that God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, wants us today to understand about the groan of creation? Three things that I want to draw to your attention. First of all, or A in your notes, we learn that the groaning of creation is a consequence. A consequence. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, or your translation may say futility. Notice, not by its own choice. It's not as though the day came where the trees were asked, hey trees, how many of you trees want to see the creation subjected to frustration? Raise your right branch. I mean, it was, no, not of its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it? I mean, what is that about? Who would that be? And why would that even happen? Well, you turn to the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you learn that this earth of ours was originally indescribably beautiful. It was just teeming with all kinds of animal life, apparently living in harmony and peace everywhere. It was awesome. But then you turn the page to Genesis chapter 3. God had declared to Adam, our representative, you know, just as we have representatives in different branches of government, so we had a representative, Adam, representing the entire human race. He was told, you can enjoy all of this, but stay away from this forbidden fruit. Because in the day that you do, you'll die. And so he sinned, rebellion, and in chapter 3 we read, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all of the days of your life. And so from that very moment, the creation became twisted with disease, death, and decay. Groaning was a consequence. God is the one who subjected this world of ours to frustration because of human rebellion against his authority. Let me give you an illustration. The story of Job, who in a single day, as a result of this tornado, you know, this 30, 35 second storm that comes through his area, completely destroys everything that he owns, and Job is left to have to bury all 10 of his kids. Can you imagine? In that same period of time, he loses everything in terms of his business, he loses his health, loses the respect of his wife, and then he's left with these so-called friends wrongly insisting it's all your fault. Job, you brought this suffering on yourself. Job, you are simply reaping what you've sown. Now we can relate to this man, can't we? Because we know that there's an unfairness to life. And so Paul is saying here, look, just because you're a Christian, you're a child of God, you are no longer under condemnation. The Holy Spirit is in your life. Don't think for a moment you're not going to suffer because you will. So it could mean for you the loss of a loved one or the unexpected onset of some disease. It completely disrupts your plans. Marriage that turns south. Kids that disappoint you. It can be a thousand and one different issues that come our way because the creation was subjected to frustration. It's in bondage to decay, groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's all a consequence. So what do we do? What do you do? 
I mean, do we throw up our hands in despair and become cynics and say, well, what's, what's the, you know, what, what in the world is the, the point of life? Let's just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Let's just try to get all the pleasure we possibly can. By the way, this is the basic response of the author of an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes until in the very final chapter he comes to his senses. But in the beginning, he's crying out, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. How would you like to invite that guy to your next family gathering, huh? I mean, what an attitude. Now, I point this out to you, this particular verse, because in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the word translated meaningless is exactly the same word that Paul uses here in Romans chapter 8, translated frustration. So what do we do? Well, the second conclusion of the three begins to prepare us for a conclusion, for an answer. So the groaning was a consequence. Be on your outline, the groaning is temporary. It's temporary. Look at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now, we're the children of God, and we're going to be revealed, that is, put on display. We're going to be God's models, revealing his glory in our ultimate salvation. And he says that the whole creation is waiting for this awesome event. Now, the word translated here, to wait, literally means to watch with outstretched neck. It's what you do if you're, say, at a parade or some sports gathering or a concert or something, and you can't quite see what's going on. So what do you do? You get up on your tiptoes, and you stretch your neck in order to see over maybe some people right in front of you so you can actually see what's going on. And so based on that idea, J.B. Phillips paraphrases this verse in the following way. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the children of God coming into their own. Creation is all excited about this. Why? Why? Well, first of all, because the change that's coming for us is going to be absolutely incredible. But in addition, creation seems to have figured out the reason it's on tiptoe is because it understands its fate is connected to ours. So creation is also going to undergo a marvelous transformation. So it waits and it watches and as it does, it groans. But you know, the creation isn't groaning by itself. Paul declares, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves groan. So it's not just the trees and the rivers and the mountains and the animals. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So we're also on tiptoe, eagerly waiting to see what God is going to pull off. And meanwhile, we groan along with the creation. But it's only temporary. So it's a consequence. It's temporary. And the third thing is the groaning is going to end. Notice the last two words of verse 20. In hope, creation was subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
It's as if the apostle is asserting here that if it's, you know, reminding us that at the same time that God cursed the earth back in Genesis chapter 3, he gave it a hope of deliverance. It's there in Genesis 3 verse 15 where God begins to predict the coming of the Christ, the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent Satan in order to reconcile us to God and restore this broken world. So as we've seen, creation is tied up with us. Victory for us means a victory for creation, and that's what Paul is asserting here. So it's waiting. It's waiting for all of this to be made known. And so it's as if today the mountains are crying out, oh, God, set us free from all of this brokenness. And God says, it'll happen. Just wait. So... From what is now groaning, we turn to what is to come. And if there's one word in our text that summarizes what is to come, it's the word glory. Notice these verses, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So now it's as if we're living in this tension between the now and the not yet. There is the now, there is the groan, but there's the not yet, the glory. And part of the not yet, the future glory, has broken into the now, the groan. Friends, it's the message of Easter. Remember the punishment that was given, or the, the warning given to Adam, the day that you eat of this forbidden fruit, you're going to die. Death is part of the curse. And so the message of Easter is what? Life, resurrection, not just for Jesus, but for us too. And it's the whole story of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to invade our lives, this great blessing of this new kingdom age in which we now live. The Holy Spirit has come to give us assurance and to give us life. All of these tremendous blessings have come to us because the not yet has broken into the now. Wow. Yeah, okay, fine. But I'm still here. And I'm still living in this broken world that's under this curse and frustration and dealing with the pangs of childbirth, a world of cancer and strokes, and heart trouble, and car accidents, and road rage, and racism, and bullying, sex trafficking, and disabilities, and diseases, and corruption, and greed, and death. All of that is the current reality. So when the glory is fully here, what are things going to be like? Well, let's consider the glory that's coming for creation. Look at verse 21. Paul describes it like this, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Would you like to know what's in store for creation? Look at some of these passages. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain, all these things are gone forever. You want to know why we need a new earth? 
Ask scientists and, and ecologists what we're doing to our ocean and our water supplies and to our air. Talk to them about what we're doing in terms of conditions in the rainforests of a country like Brazil or the devastation because of human activity that has occurred in the third world country like Haiti. Just talk to them about those things and you will see that change is, is needed and it's coming. Isaiah 11, in that day the wolf and the lamb will live together, the leopard will lie down with the baby goat, the calf and the yearling will be safe with a lion, and the little child will put his hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Wow. 2 Peter 3.13, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So as the waters cover the sea right now, righteousness is going to cover this entire planet. It's what Peter is talking about in the sermon that he preached recorded in Acts chapter 3, where speaking of Jesus, he says, he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Final restoration is coming. It's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 19, 28, when he mentions the regeneration of all things. And I point out that verse to you because the word used in Matthew 19, 28, regeneration is the same word that is found in John chapter 3 where it's translated to be born again. So it's saying creation is going to be born again. We've been born again, and God is going to make this earth a fit and proper home for born-again people by creating a new heaven and new earth, a home of righteousness. So imagine this world without any of its curse. I mean, we really can't because this is the only world we've ever known, right? But in a sense, imagine rocks and, and trees and rivers and seas, all of this. I mean, I understand that the last two chapters of the book of Revelation say there will be no more sea, no more sun. But we need to understand that Revelation is an example of what is called apocalyptic literature. And you need to apply the rules for understanding apocalyptic literature to understand what Revelation is all about. Simply stated, the seas were a picture of chaos, confusion, disaster, gone. All of that difficulty, gone. And for John, a prisoner on an island about 40 or so miles offshore on this little island called Patmos, no more sea means no separation between John and the Christian community. Gone forever. Wow. So yeah, rocks, trees, mountains, rivers, oceans, freshwater, saltwater, fish, whales, porpoises, dolphins, all kinds of colorful birds, each praising the Lord in its various different tunes. And of course, dogs, beautiful dogs, like this little guy pictured here. That is Owen. <laughs> That's our dog. Now, I don't know if, if the dogs in heaven are going to be resurrected pets, you know, or if they're going to be newly created dogs, but can you imagine these dogs running through the fields, chasing tennis balls, maybe even a squirrel or two here or there? I mean, all of this is going to be absolutely amazing, and that is what is in store for the creation. Glory. No pollution, no disease, no disasters, glory. How about for you and for me? 
Well, here Paul describes that which awaits us in several ways. He begins verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. First fruits, what is that? Well, as the word indicates, the, f- the fruit that ripened first. I learned that in seminary. <laughs> yeah. So when you saw the farmer coming in with, you know, a bushel basket full of first fruits early in the season, you knew that was a sign of a great harvest to follow. So here Paul asserts, listen, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is the absolute guarantee, it's the pledge, it's the down payment of a great harvest to follow. Okay, but what is to follow? Well, Paul says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You're going to get a brand new body. A body that's no longer subjected to all of the diseases and difficulties and challenging and aging and death and decay stuff that we deal with now. All of that's going to be gone. Now, I don't know what your resurrection body is going to look like, but I do know that God is not making cloned bodies. I do know from 1 Corinthians 15, there will be continuity between your present body and your future resurrected body. So will those of us who die as senior adults look like we did when we were like 20? And will infants who passed away in infancy look like they would have looked like if they had reached the age of 20? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know it says in Philippians 3, Christ will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. And we're also going to receive the fullness of our adoption. Now Paul says, you already are the sons and daughters of God. You've been adopted into his family, yeah, but you haven't entered into your inheritance. So all of that is to come. But here's the amazing thing. God has already done amazing things in your life. In giving you the Holy Spirit, making you a child of God, you're a new creation, a new heart, And guess what? We're not going to have to struggle with the remains of sin any longer. Temptation, the struggles, the failures, all of that will be gone. No disease, no disabilities, no mental health issues, no death or decay in a new creation with all of its beauty and its absolute magnificence. And there's going to be meaningful work to do in heaven. Please don't think that in heaven you get to float around on your own posturepedic cloud um, and, you know, plucking a harp with angel wings. That's not the picture we get of the Bible. There's going to be meaningful work to do, thoughts to think, music to write and to sing, literature to explore, golf to play. So those of you that enjoy playing golf, you can play throughout eternity And guess what? You'll have an eternity to improve your score. Yeah. So no sand traps, no hazards to worry about, and talents. If you've got talents now and you do, expect that you're going to have the same kinds of talents when you get to heaven. There's continuity of life. So the talents that you have now, you'll get in heaven to explore the magnificence of God, all that he's done, 
And we'll get to worship him through our work, our play, all of our interactions. There's one word that summarizes all of this, and it's this word glory. What does it mean? Well, the Hebrew word kabod, or the Greek word doxa, from which we get doxology, means weight. Hebrew, Greek, doesn't matter, it means weight. We say that something is weighty, something is significant. That's what is meant by glory. C.S. Lewis, on one occasion, wrote, uh, actually gave a lecture and then became part of a chapter in a book entitled The Weight of Glory. That's sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? Because glory means weight, the weight of weight, yeah. But it basically sums up what's going on here as we move from the present groan into this state of eternal glory. The result of all of this is, according to Paul, we now have hope. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen, no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You know, for a lot of people today, hoping is something that they do. Sort of like wishful thinking. You know, they hope that the medical test will turn out okay, or they hope to get a summer job, or they hope to pass their final exams, whatever. But the Bible indicates that hope is something that we have. You see the difference? You can possess it. So here's my definition of hope. The confident, certain expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill his every promise to you in Christ. If God was able, but he wasn't willing, never going to happen. If God is willing, but isn't able, not going to happen. But this is asserting the expectation that God is both willing and able to fulfill his every promise to you in Christ Jesus. So what is our response supposed to be during this age of the groan? Here it is in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now you notice those underlying words, I consider. The Greek word is logizomai, we get logic from it. And so it means you arrive at a conclusion by a process of thought and reasoning. So it doesn't mean you work yourself up into believing something that you know isn't true. What does it mean? It means you reason things out and come to a logical biblical conclusion. So the Bible isn't giving us a general message of comfort, you know, cheer up, things couldn't be worse, could they? They're not really that bad, are they? Well, maybe they are for you this morning. Maybe you've come to this service today and you're in pain. On any given Sunday, we have people showing up here or online for worship that are really struggling. I mean, maybe that's where you're at today. The pain of loneliness because a partner is no longer part of your life. And the ache and the difficulty, the sense of emptiness just can't be replaced by anybody or anything else. So you sit in pain today. Or maybe for you it's the fear of a recent diagnosis and you're terrified. So what does all of this mean for you? Well, you consider. What do you consider? Consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us.
Now, this is not very comforting for the person who is not a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian today, this is not for you. This is for us. You see the word us in that verse? Us, those who have the Holy Spirit, those who are no longer under condemnation because of Christ. We're the us. And if you're not part of the us, you ought to read the verse that your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the sufferings that are yet to come for you. But for those who have turned in faith from our sense of brokenness and failure and sin to saving faith in Jesus, this is our hope. Now, Paul is not suggesting that you sugarcoat your pain, that you deny it, and just talk about and think about heavenly thoughts. No. But it does mean in the midst of the darkness and the difficulty that you weigh things out. You take your, you've seen these scales with two pans. You take all of your suffering and you put it into one pan and it drops down. All of this weight, all of this heaviness because of your suffering and the pain that you're dealing with right now. But then he says you take the other side of it, the glory, and you put it in a pan and what happens? It breaks the pan. It breaks the scale because of the awesomeness of the glory that's ahead of us. And so Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 4, our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So go ahead and groan. I'll groan with you and you groan with me. But at the same time, Paul is saying, Engage in some serious thought and contemplation and realize in the midst of your suffering that the glory that's going to be revealed to you is incredible. So whatever Lord pain is going on in my life right now, it's real and it seems overwhelming like a huge weight, but it's not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to me. So when you experience suffering, think, consider the glory, And may your certain future encourage you to hang on and indeed to trust because your present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be yours. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for the certainty and the security of our hope that one day all of this pain is going to end. And you will right all wrongs. There will be justice and all things will be made new. No more sorrow, no more conflict, no more pain. Father, until that day comes, keep us faithful to you. And may we know that you've entered into our struggle. In the person of your son, Jesus. And that you continue to enter into our pain by your Holy Spirit. Even when we're so wounded, we find it difficult to know even how to cope. So we're grateful today that you hear our groanings and somehow use them to accomplish your purposes in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.